0: to the Preach and Persuade Podcast. My name is Sam Parada, and I am your host, and I am all alone in this episode. I have no partner in crime to talk with, so we'll see how much I have to say when I'm just by myself. It seems like when I'm with Dan, we feed off of each other, and we say, you know what? This episode's going to be, ah, we can get it done in 45 minutes, but Dan and I were like drugs to each other, and eventually we're going for two hours, so hey, Maybe me being being by myself means that I won't really have that much to say, and this might be a short episode, maybe only twenty minutes or a half hour, or maybe less. We'll see. But nonetheless, I'm by myself. And I want to start out this episode by reading from Job chapter twenty one, starting in verse seven. Job says this Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. And no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow, calves, and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock, and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre, and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity, and in the peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, Depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. So I say that, or I read that from Job 21, to really ask the same questions that Job is asking. You know, a little bit of a background on Job. This isn't going to be, this podcast isn't going to be about Job, but just as a little bit of a background, uh, Job the book of Job is addressing this thing called the retribution principle, this idea that, that bad things happen to those who do bad things. So, you know, retribution, you get what you deserve. So if all these bad things are happening to Job, then that must mean, therefore, that Job has done some wicked thing because of the retribution principle. And that's you know, in a nutshell, the arguments of his friends. And so then Job, in his argument, is laying this out. Well, look at the wicked. Look at the ones that we know are wicked, who who do not pay any attention to God. They don't pray to him. Why do I need God? Why do I need his knowledge? Why should I pray to him? And their life prospers. So Job is making an argument, but nonetheless, the same thing. We look around us, Christians. We look around and and we see, well, we see wickedness certainly, but we see uh, wicked people prosper in many ways, and we see people who are non-believers do really, I would say, wonderful things when you think about medical advancements and technology and ingenuity and industry and all the stuff and business. And there, there is a lot of things that we would generally say are good that come from the minds of non-believers. And so why is this? Why is this? And so all that to say, this podcast episode is going to be on the doctrine of common grace. Something that's not talked about a lot. I've heard it talked about in reference to why we as Christians should be able to use things like critical race theory and intersectionality as tools to help us deal with our sin. That is a wrong way to use common grace that I've heard of recently. Uh, Common grace does not give us as Christians the ability to baptize the ideas and and, and things of non-believers and use them as, as Christians. Um, I might talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but more recently, I just heard Owen Strand's podcast um, on the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, um, where he mentions common grace. Uh, the fact that the verdict um, of Rittenhouse was not guilty, that he was acquitted, is a common grace reality. Uh, the secular justice system actually made a just verdict. That is common grace. Uh, But there's so much more to this discussion on common grace that I want to begin to flesh out a little bit. I don't know how long this is going to go, but we'll see. We'll just see where it goes. Uh, But to understand common grace, first we need to understand grace in general. What does grace mean? What, what does the word grace mean? Well, simply, it means an undeserved gift or unmerited favor. When you get something that you do not deserve, you have been shown grace. So, there's, in general, there's two types of grace that you can get some more depending on somebody's theology or how nitpicky we want to get. But in general, uh, let's just be broad here. There's two types of grace. There's saving grace and there's common grace. That's the two categories that I'm going to go with for now. Saving grace and common grace. Saving grace is the grace that you are shown when you are saved from your sins. So what do you deserve? What does the sinner deserve? Death. We know that quite well. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so what you deserve for the life that you've lived in rebellion against God is spiritual separation from God. You deserve an eternal hell. You deserve his wrath. Uh, God's wrath is forever on sin. God is a just God. He must punish lawlessness. He doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and forget about it. No, he punishes sin. That's what he does to sin. He pours out his wrath on sin because he's just and holy and righteous. And sin cannot be in his presence. So, you deserve, as a sinner, God's wrath. You deserve hell. And hell is a conscious, eternal torment. Um... Think about this for a moment, just on the nature of hell and what you deserve. You are a finite creature, finite, not infinite, but you have sinned against an infinite being. You've sinned against God, who is infinite and eternal. And so he has an infinite wrath. Now, how can a finite creature such as ourselves satisfy satisfy an in infinite wrath. How is that possible? It's, it's not possible in the sense of you, you a finite creature can't complete it, again, can't satisfy it. And so hell, therefore then, needs to be an eternal reality, a never-ending reality, because you will never, as a finite creature, never satisfy an infinite wrath. That's why the cross is so amazing, Christ being God, very God, he actually was able as an infinite being to satisfy the infinite wrath of the Father, but him also being man, truly a man in every way, was actually able to die and pay for the sins of humanity so, this is an amazing thing. This is why the hypostatic union uh, is so Im- important to our soteriology. If if Christ isn't fully God and fully man, there's no way that he could actually accomplish what he did on the cross, dying for the sins of all those who would believe in him. But nonetheless, all of that is that is saving grace. You deserve hell. Christ pays for your sin in your place, and faces the wrath that you deserve on the cross. That is grace, an undeserved gift. Not only that, but through faith, you are given righteousness. You are given Christ's righteous record, the life that he lived on earth. Without ever sinning, he gives it to you, credits it to your account. You are imputed his righteousness through faith. And this is, again, Grace, you don't deserve to be righteous before the eyes of the Father. you don't deserve that. Of course, of course you don't deserve that. but you are given righteousness through faith. That is grace. That's saving grace. Who are the people who receive this grace, this gift, this undeserved gift? It's those who God has elected to say before the foundation of the world. It's those who have been foreknown, for loved, and predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. I think about Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 so wonderfully articulates uh, God's saving grace, starting in verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's grace. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Wow. Verse 4, even as he chose us, here we go, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, There it is right there. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. All of this, the adoption as sons and daughters through Christ, being holy and blameless before Him, being predestined, being chosen before the foundation of the world, being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of this, all of this is grace. This is grace. This is the things of saving grace. And again, these things are only for those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, the elect. And so, what this means is that saving grace is a particular grace. That's an important word. That's an important uh, distinction between common grace. It's a particular grace. And In- Indeed, maybe a, be- a better way to just think about these two types of grace are particular grace and common grace. Because if it's not particular and broad, it's, you know, common but nonetheless, what is the particular grace? Well, it's, it's saving grace. And so only those who are gods are given this particular grace. I think of another passage in Ephesians 2, a very familiar passage. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So again, for by grace you have been saved. Saving grace right there. It's not of your doing. It's not something you've earned or merited or worked towards. It's completely and entirely a gift that you could never get yourself. You are dead in sin. And then by God's grace, you are made alive by the power of the gospel. As though spirit works to regenerate you, that is all grace. Now, you who have been shown God's saving grace, before you were shown his saving grace, you were a dead sinner, were born into this world, children of wrath. You know, let's go back to Ephesians 2 quick. Let's just read it, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that that was you, that was me, that's every single person born into this world before they're shown God's particular saving grace. Now, if that's our nature, if we are totally depraved and, and... and this is kind of the problem that I'm starting to, you know, flesh out here or, or articulate, the problem of Job twenty one. Okay, if that's if that's human nature, if we're just wicked and and under wrath and, and following our own horrible, wicked, sinful passions, uh, let's let's go to a different passage. Let's actually go to Romans three. I'm gonna read Romans three for you here. Uh, starting in verse 9, What then? Uh, Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All are under sin, as it is written. Here we go. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, that is the state of the human being. So, why do unbelievers prosper in some sense? Why do they experience the good things of creation? Why do they experience the wonderful tastes of food and and the wonderful sounds of music and the wonderful views of, of you know, a mountain uh, view or a sunset or whatever it might be? Why do they experience these good things? Why do nonbelievers know true things? Why does the nonbeliever, or why... Can the non-believer, I should say, experience the joys of marriage and marital bliss and relationships and laugh? Why do they laugh? <laughs> if they're totally depraved. Shouldn't they just like, should all humor and, and all that just be squashed out of them? Should not their wicked heart eat them alive? Should not they fall into a pit of of depravity so deep that they just cannot do anything good at all? Should they not just be totally irrational in their thoughts and in their actions? Why do they do anything that seems as though it's good? And again, back to what Strand was talking about, the court system of a fallen country who kills millions of babies a year, a million, let's say. How can they make a decision like that that's just, temporally just, now that has nothing to do with the fact that Rittenhouse if he's not a believer if he if he doesn't repent of a sin won't ex- experience God's eternal justice if Rittenhouse doesn't repent he's going to be in the courtroom of God and he's going to be found guilty instead of not guilty this time and apart from God's saving grace every single human being would be guilty in the courtroom of God but nonetheless this is this is the problem that we face When we have uh, a doctrine of total depravity that that seems to imply that human beings, apart from God, are just going to be hopeless and unable to do anything good at all. They're just going to murder each other and just destroy each other. They're a cancer to themselves. But that's not what we see. It's not what we see. So... The problem has been solved in wrong ways. Some people say, well, that must mean our doctrine of total depravity is, is not right. So we got to get rid of our doctrine of total depravity or or weaken it in some sense. Uh, oh man's not not as depraved as we once thought. But that's not that's not being faithful to Scripture. Scripture describes humanity as totally depraved. Every aspect of his being is is tainted by sin. So it's not that. That's not the solution to our problem. We didn't get total depravity wrong. No, we got it right. And the conclusion then is that, well, God is actually far more gracious than we could ever imagine. And he's gracious to the non-believer. There's a common grace that has, you could say, spread around the world where non-believers around the world can experience good things and do some sense of, of good things. And that is due to God's common grace. So... Common grace, simple definition, a favor that God shows generally to all humanity in varying degrees, obviously. Some people you could say are, have more common grace than others, but nonetheless, here's one thing we do know that every non-believer in this world right now who is still breathing and still alive, is presently being shown grace by God. Why is that? Well, it's because every human being separated from God right now is a sinner. And sin requires punishment. And so every moment that God decides not to bring wrath down on the world is an expression of his grace, his common grace. Now, eventually he will. Eventually, every single human being will stand before the judgment throne. Eventually, God will no longer be patient with this world and he will punish this world. But for now, in the meantime, as we await that that judgment, that time of judgment, as we await the return of Christ, God is being gracious with with. fallen humanity and that's an incredible thing you know we hear people say yeah why do good things happen to bad or (laughs) I said that wrong why do bad things happen to good people I asked the right question (laughs) but the the question that people are asking why do bad things happen to good people you know why did my mom get cancer why did she get cancer You hear non-believers ask that all the time. You hear believers ask that. And you go, wait a minute now. Your mom has lived on this earth for 40 years as a non-believer. That's incredibly gracious. Why was she allowed to live for 40 years without cancer? That's the question. That's the question we should be asking. Why on earth? Does anybody go even a moment without disease and sickness? Wow. Wow, that's incredible. That's grace. So, the right question, the question I originally asked, why do good things happen to bad people? That's the question we should be asking. And that is grace. Again, come full circle. So, that is by way of introduction. Now... I'm going to transition into a deep dive into the, the Noahic covenant. The Noahic covenant is the, you could say, the inception, the beginning point of our doctrine of common grace. And I'm going to be, stay rather close to Abraham Kuyper's work on common grace. Kuyper is the one known for writing <laughs> the most about this doctrine that i know of at least. Uh Calvin certainly wrote a bit about it, but he didn't write about common grace specifically calling it that. He wrote about it in his commentaries when he would come to passages that, you know, talked about God being uh, showing favor to the non-believer in some way or re- withholding his judgment from the non-believer. So, Kuyper is going to be our friend in this endeavor. He uh he lived from 1837 to 1920s, he's he's Dutch. And, uh, man, he lived quite the interesting life. He was brilliant, obviously. He founded a political party. He founded a, a university. He led the formation of a reformed denomination and the movement to create reformed elementary schools. He served as the prime minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. Uh... So he was just a prolific institution builder. And uh, again, prolific author, wrote lots of theological treatises, biblical and confessional studies, historical works. Yeah, nonetheless, kind of a, a pretty accomplished man. So that's who we are going to be, or I guess who I'm going to be going through as I consider this discussion of common grace. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about the Noahic covenant. Tune back in as we continue thinking about God's common grace.